Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. This time around, we are focusing on 1967's In the Heat of the Night. This was directed by Norman Jewison. The screenwriter was Sterling Siliphant, based on a John Ball novel. It was originally released on August 2nd, 1967. And as a quick plot summary, courtesy of the collection of find writers over at Wikipedia, wealthy industrialist Phil Colbert moves to Sparta, Mississippi to build a factory. Late one night, police officer Sam Wood discovers Colbert's moving body lying on the street. Wood finds Virgil Tibbs, a black man with a fat wallet, at the train station and arrests him. Police chief Gillespie accuses him of murder and robbery, but soon learns Tibbs is a top homicide inspector from Philadelphia. Tibbs wants to leave town on the next train, but his boss suggests he stay in Sparta to help with the murder investigation. Though Gillespie, like many of Sparta's white residents, is racist, he and Tibbs reluctantly agree to work together. A doctor estimates that Colbert has been dead for less than an hour when his body was found. Tibbs examines the body and concludes the murder happened earlier than the doctor thought. The killer was right-handed, and the victim had been killed elsewhere and moved to where Wood found his body. Gillespie arrests another suspect, Harvey Oberst, who protests his innocence. The police plan to beat him to extract a confession but Tibbs reveals Oberst is left-handed and has witnesses to confirm his alibi. Frustrated by the ineptitude of the local police, but impressed by Tibbs, Colbert's widow threatens to halt construction of the factory unless Tibbs leads the investigation, so the town's leading citizens are forced to comply with her demand. Tibbs initially suspects the murderer is plantation owner Endicott, a genteel racist and one of the town's most powerful citizens, who publicly opposes Colbert's new factory. When Tibbs interrogates him, Endicott slaps him in the face. Tibbs slaps him back, so Endicott sends a gang of thugs after him. Gillespie rescues him and tells him to leave town to save himself, but Tibbs is convinced he could solve the case. Tibbs asks Wood to retrace his patrol car route during the night of the murder. Gillespie joins them. After questioning why Wood partially detours from his patrol route, Tibbs finds that Wood enjoys passing by the house of 16-year-old Dolores Purdy, with bright lights and unobscured windows to watch her undress. Gillespie discovers that Wood made a sizable deposit to his bank account the day after the murderer. He arrests Wood, despite Tibbs' protests that he is not the murderer. Tibbs tells Gillespie that the murder was committed at the site of the planned factory, which clears Wood because he could not have driven both his and Colbert's cars back into town. Dolores' brother, Mr. Purdy, a hostile local, brings her to the police station and files statutory rape charges against Wood for getting her pregnant. When Tibbs insists on being present during Dolores' questioning, Purdy is offended that a black man is present during her interrogation and soon afterwards gathers a mob to attack Tibbs. 
Tibbs pressures backstreet abortionist Mama Kaleba to reveal that she is about to perform an abortion on Dolores. When she arrives and sees Tibbs, Dolores runs away. Tibbs follows her and confronts her armed boyfriend, Ralph, a cook at a local roadside diner. Purdy's mob also arrives and holds Tibbs at gunpoint. Tibbs tells Purdy to check Dolores's purse for the money Ralph gave her for an abortion, which he got from killing and robbing Colbert. Purdy realizes Tibbs is right when he examines the purse. After Purdy confronts him for getting his sister pregnant, Ralph shoots Purdy dead. Tibbs grabs Ralph's gun, and Gillespie arrives on the scene. Ralph is arrested and confesses to the killing of Colbert. After hitchhiking a ride with Colbert and asking him for a job, Ralph attacked him at the construction site of the new factory, intending only to knock Colbert unconscious and rob him, but instead accidentally killing him. Tibbs boards a train bound for Philadelphia as Gillespie, having carried a suitcase, respectfully bids him farewell. So I think that mostly covers it. Uh, the one thing I would say, when they mention that Wood likes to watch Dolores Purdy undress, that kind of implies he's more of a peeping Tom, and he is a peeping Tom, but Dolores Purdy is also an exhibitionist, so she's not just undressing, she is strutting around in the nude, knows she's being watched, and doesn't seem to care. Correct. The only other two things that I would correct from the synopsis, it makes it sound like they randomly picked up Harvey Oberst. They had found that Oberst had Colbert's wallet with some, but not all of the money in it on him. So that's why Gillespie zeroed in on Oberst at first, though it is right. They were planning on beating a confession out of him. And uh, Tibbs wasn't getting on a train back to Philadelphia. The The setup for Tibbs being in Sparta was he came from Philadelphia and was headed to Memphis to visit family and had to swap trains at um, Sparta. So when he leaves, he's actually continuing on his trip to Memphis. He's not going back to Philadelphia. Okay, so what was your first exposure to this film? Was it for the podcast or prior to it? Prior to it, back <laughs> what I like to call in the golden days of American cable television when channels kind of strictly followed their remit, I caught a film called No Way to Treat a Lady on American Movie Classics, which starred George Seagal and Rod Steiger. I highly recommend it. George Seagal is a police detective trying to catch a serial killer. Rod Steiger is the serial killer. And the the hook of the film is that the serial killer impersonates various different people to get close to his victims. So to kill one, he may be a plumber, to another, a hairdresser, etc., and takes on completely different personas. And with that film, I became, I kind of fell in love with Rod Steiger. He also did an episode of Reflections on the Silver Screen, which I, I wish would be released on DVD or Blu-ray in a box set. It was a show American Movie Classics did where a film professor interviewed stars about their career, and they were shot when we still had people like Jack Lemmon and Jimmy Stewart, etc. with us, and Rod Steiger was one of them. And, uh, of course, In the Heat of the Night was one of the films that that special profiled, and I had recorded it on VCR and kind of used that as my list 
to hunt down Steiger films. Okay. Yeah, I suspected that you would have seen it because you mentioned your appreciation of Steiger's work before. Uh, this was actually my first exposure. It was one of those things that was on my watch list, but when I decided to do this podcast, I decided that, no, this is one I have been eagerly anticipating. I'm going to put it off until it comes up in the rotation so that the podcast has a fresh reaction. There's actually a, a lot of movies I'm looking forward to coming up in the future that I haven't seen before, but this was one of them. So your general thoughts on this film? I really like it. I think it's, I think it's a good acting showcase for both Poitier and Steiger. On this viewing, it occurred to me that the mystery, the quote-unquote mystery, didn't really work. It's not a mystery that plays fair with the audience, so it's not a, this is not a, can you saw, can you catch the killer before Galepsi and Tibbs does kind of film, but I think it's still a very good, intense drama. Okay. I actually really enjoyed it. I think there are subtle clues to help solve the mystery that are in here. And I think despite being nominated in seven categories, it was overlooked in two of the categories, which we will get to. Yeah. Cause I, I was very impressed with it as regular listeners know, or even listeners who are joining us just for the second time. If you're going in order after every 10 films, Trey and I pick our top pick of those 10 as well as the bottom pick of those 10. And then when we're done these 100 films, we're going to pick the top of those 10. And Offline Trey and I have been saying that yeah, up to this point, there is a, one of those films we picked as the top of each 10 that doesn't really have competition. I think now it has competition. Okay. So I, I think this was actually one of the best films I've seen in a long time. Good. I like that you liked it that much. And actually, one of the things I'm going to say this, you know what, I'll, I'll say it now because it's part of the discussion. I don't understand how this was not nominated for Best Art Direction. Mm. Yeah, a lot of it was location shooting, but their choices for set decoration are actually really detailed. We know Gillespie is the new sheriff in town long before anyone tells us he's the new sheriff in town because his office wall have the... The, the wallpaper has outlines of lighter patches and faded patches showing where commendations used to hang and have been taken down, but he's not in disgrace. So the previous occupant took those with him. We get a hint that Ralph can get obsessed with women, our, our cook. This is the, the hint I saw that actually, I couldn't confidently say it was him, but he was on my list of suspects because he... It's not just because he has a girly calendar on the wall of the cafe. It's because his calendar has the first of the month on a Monday. But Sheriff Gillespie's calendar, which is clearly marked September 1966, and those dates are confirmed, that calendar's accurate, that one has the first of the month on a Thursday. So Ralph doesn't have just any girly calendar and he's focused on the calendar. He's got it set to the wrong month because that's the girl he wants to look at. Well, yeah, and then there's the... I don't think they play it up because by the time they solve it, there's not much time left in the film. You get the sense that Ralph's a little mentally disturbed by the end. And, you know, with what we know now, 
about some people with certain sociopathic tendencies, you know, when you see him popping flies in the diner with a rubber band, that that can be an indicator as well. Yeah, that and just toying with people to get his own way. I mean, he's a chef who lies to Deputy Wood about having pie just to screw with Wood. So we, we do see that he does take a certain amount of pleasure in harming people or at least doesn't really care about other people. So yeah, there there are hints of those sociopathic tendencies in there. So like I said, it's not a it's not a completely fair mystery because we don't have definitive proof that it is Ralph until it shows up. Although we can say with Tibbs, we can say, okay, the father of this baby is probably our most likely suspect. And we see how Tibbs sets up to discover exactly who that father is. But I actually like that because I think it it plays more to the realism of the situation because it's it's not like Sherlock Holmes where or an Agatha Christie novel in the real world where you can identify every suspect. Sometimes you know that like that's all you know is whoever the killer is is going to be in this place at this time. And you discover who it is when they show up. So yeah, it's not a fair mystery in the fictional sense, but I think it is a realistic way to resolve the mystery. And that's what this is. I mean, the racial dynamics are obviously a huge part of the story, but compared to Gentleman's Agreement, if you take out uh, the anti-Semitism, you don't have a movie. Here, if you take out the racial dynamics, you'd still have a movie. You know, if Rachel Tibbs happened to be a white police officer, they'd still have a mystery to solve. He still could have been a suspect. It would have been a far different and probably lesser film, but you could still do it. Oh, yeah, and I that's part of what drives the performances. Poitier is simmering with indignity and rage through a lot of the film because of just all of the abuse that's heaped on him. And, uh, you know, he's a man torn. At first, it's not really his sense of justice that keeps him there, right? You know, there's a veiled threat hanging in the air. I like that opening scene to where, you know, it's clear Gillespie doesn't like Tibbs. Tibbs doesn't like Gillespie. They both want him gone. And Tibbs' boss offers his services to Gillespie. And part of what I think makes Steiger's performance so compelling and what I think drove him to win the award, which we'll talk about later, is there's always something going on behind Steiger's eyes. And you can see him struggling with, I have to work with a person that that I'm bigoted against, but can I solve this without this person? And he, you know, he uses that veiled thread of, you know, fine, get on the plane. I'll call your boss. I'm sure he'll have something to say to you when you finally get back to Philadelphia. That that loops, that brings Tibbs in. And then later, you know, he's torn between getting out for his own safety and solving the mystery because you can see he gets hooked on the mystery. And what what I didn't remember but I liked in this viewing because of the day and age is they don't soft soap the racist, but they're pretty fair and balanced. I, I liked that because of who Endicott is, 
Tibbs let himself go down a rabbit hole. Yeah, there's that powerful line where Steiger says, you're just like us, where Tibbs is realizing, oh, I want Endicott to be guilty. And he was. That was one thing I noticed when we were filming or watching this, the, especially to the people who claim that there is no systemic racism in North America. There is, and this shows it clearly in two cases. One is that Steiger originally was accusing Tibbs just because he was a black man with a lot of money, because the system they were living in didn't make that easy to happen. Right? The black people with a lot of money, it was very difficult for them to come by that money honestly, not because of the skills or aptitudes of the black person, but because the opportunities were not provided to them. So that's one. The other one is the audience reaction to the slap. Yeah. When Endicott slaps Tibbs, Tibbs slaps him back. And apparently the audiences at the time were right there going, oh my God, he hit him back. When he's saying, did you see that? I think in a modern film, we'd have had Steiger's character say, yes, I just saw you, in a, saw you assault a police officer. Because that's really what that was about. Right. And not, not taking anything away from... Poitier, but I'm focusing a little bit on Steiger because, you know, he was one of the winners this year. That's another scene to where on the surface, it doesn't look like Steiger is doing much, but there's that Endicott's, what are you going to do about it, Sheriff? And Steiger kind of looking at both of them, I, I don't know, <laughs> you know, to where again, what, mm -hmm. what do I do here? You know, if it was any other man, that that man would have had the right to slap Endicott back. But this is a black man. What do I do? But I kind of need this black man to help me win my case. What do I do? Uh, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Or even would Endicott have been comfortable enough to slap a white cop? Yeah. Right? He was established as a police officer. So, yeah, I do really like it. Another one on the, the art direction. Endicott got revenge by setting that mob after him. And when they are in that factory and Tibbs picks up the pipe, he's ready to defend himself before Gillespie shows up. It's shot so that when you're viewing Tibbs, the camera's coming in from below, you could see the signs on the walls behind him. And they're all talking about, let's be safe, make sure no one gets hurt in this factory. Just really excellent touches. And yeah, they did it on location. So some of these they would have added like the calendars, the commendation ones on the wall, I'm sure they would have added. Or, you know, maybe they found things on the wall that they could take down to do it. That safety poster might have been there, but they decided, no, let's shoot it to catch that. They probably scouted locations in town and said, yes, this is it. We like that one. Yeah, I was very impressed with this overall. There is also, and it's a minor thing, there's a really neat shot at the closing of the film to where they zoom out from Tibbs sitting on the train. And it's like Jewison going, ha, 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 this isn't a model shot. Yeah, there's a lot that they've done. It was clearly a lot of location shooting and not a lot of constructed sets. I think if they had any sets, it might have been like Sheriff's Office. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that was pushing it. it. It is very well done. And I don't know if do we have... We could probably keep gushing for a while. Do we want to do that or just get into all the awards and nominations? Because that's part of what I want to talk about next is the, I said it's missing two categories. Should we go through them and then talk about the other one where I think it's missing? Sure, we can do that. All right. 
So these 40th Annual Academy Awards were held on April 10th, 1968 at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, hosted again by Bob Hope and directed by Richard Dunlap. For Best Picture, In the Heat of the Night beat out Bonnie and Clyde, Dr. Doolittle, The Graduate, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Best Director, Mike Nichols won for The Graduate, so this divided the Best Picture and Best Director awards. He beat out Arthur Penn for Bonnie and Clyde, Stanley Kramer for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Richard Brooks for In Cold Blood, and Norman Jewison for In the Heat of the Night. For Best Actor, Rod Steiger took home that award as Gillespie from In the Heat of the Night, beating out Warren Beatty for Bonnie and Clyde, Dustin Hoffman for The Graduate, Paul Newman for Cool Hand Luke, and Spencer Tracy had a posthumous nomination for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Catherine Hepburn won Best Actress for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, beating out Anne Bancroft for The Graduate, Faye Dunaway for Bonnie and Clyde, Edith Evans for The Whisperers, and Audrey Hepburn for Wait Until Dark. Best Supporting Actor went to George Kennedy for Cool Hand Luke, beating out John Cassavetes in The Dirty Dozen, Gene Hackman for Bonnie and Clyde, Cecil Kellaway for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and Michael J. Pollard for Bonnie and Clyde. Best Supporting Actress went to Estelle Parsons for Bonnie and Clyde, beating out Carol Channing for Thoroughly Modern Millie, Mildred Natwick for Barefoot in the Park, Bay Richards for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and Catherine Ross for The Graduate. Best Story and Screenplay written directly for the screen went to William Rose for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, beating out Bonnie and Clyde, Divorce American Style, Two for the Road and the War is Over. Best Screenplay Best on Material from Another Medium went to In the Heat of the Night, beating out Cool Hand Luke, The Graduate, In Cold Blood, and Ulysses. Best Foreign Language Film went to Closely Watched Trains out of Czechoslovakia, beating out Elamor Brujo out of Spain, I Even Met Happy Gypsies from Yugoslavia, Life for Life from France, and Portrait of Chico from Japan. Best Documentary Feature went to The Anderson Platoon, beating out Festival, Harvest, A King's Story, and A Time for Burning. Best Documentary Short Subject went to The Redwoods, beating out Monument to the Dream, A Place to Stand, See with the Pillar, and While I Run This Race. Best Live Action Short Subject went to A Place to Stand, beating out Paddle to the Sea, Sky Over Holland, and Stop, Look, and Listen. Best Short Subject Cartoons went to The Box, beating out Hypothes Beta and What on Earth? Remind me to come back to that category. Okay. Best Original Music Score went to Thoroughly Modern Millie. That beat out Elmer Bird, or by Elmer Bernstein. That beat out Cool Hand Luke, Dr. Doolittle, Far From the Mattering Crowd, and In Cold Blood. Best Original Score or Adaptation Score went to Camelot, uh, specifically Alfred Newman and Ken Darby, beating out Dr. Doolittle, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and Valley of the Dolls, which is notable because this is the first nomination for John Williams. You will hear his name come up many, many times over the decades. I think about 50. Best Song went to Talk to the Animals from Dr. Doolittle, beating out The Bare Necessities from The Jungle Book, The Eyes of Love from Banning, The Look of Love from Casino Royale, that's the comedic satire version, and the title track from Thoroughly Modern Millie. Best Costume Design went to Camelot, beating out Bonnie and Clyde, The Happiest Millionaire, The Taming of the Shrew, and Thoroughly Modern Millie. It's been a while since we didn't have Edith Head nominated there. Yes. Best Art Direction went to Camelot, beating out Dr. Doolittle, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, The Taming of the Shrew, and Thoroughly Modern Millie. 
And again, I contend that In the Heat of the Night should have been in that mix. Haven't seen Camelot, so don't say for sure it should have won, but I think it should have been in that mix. Best Cinematography went to Bonnie and Clyde, beating up Camelot, Dr. Doolittle, The Graduate, and In Cold Blood. Best Sound went to In the Heat of the Night, beating out Camelot, Dirty Dozen, Dr. Doolittle, and Thoroughly Modern Millie. Best Sound Effects only had two nominations, The Dirty Dozen beat In the Heat of the Night. Best Film Editing, Hal Ashby won for his work on In the Heat of the Night, beating out Beach Red, The Dirty Dozen, Dr. Doolittle, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And Best Special Visual Effects, Dr. Doolittle beat out Tobruk, the only other nominee. Now for the non-competitive awards, the Gene Hersholt Humanitarian Award went to Gregory Peck, and the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial World went to Alfred Hitchcock, so he finally took an Oscar home. And then an honorary Oscar was presented to Arthur Freed for his distinguished service to the Academy and the production of six top-rated awards telecasts. And this was actually the last Academy Awards ceremony that was broadcast over radio. This was actually postponed by two days. So there were issues because apparently they weren't sure if Sidney Poitier, Sammy Davis Jr., Louis Armstrong, and Diane Carroll were going to be involved. So, And uh, Alfred Hitchcock had one of the shortest Academy Awards acceptance speeches in history for the Irving Jean Thalberg Award. It was five words, thank you very much indeed, which was one word longer than William Holden's award for Stalag 17, which was thank you, thank you. And he still got played off. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this is also the only year where two films, Bonnie and Clyde and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, got nominations in all four acting categories. So most nominations, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and Bonnie and Clyde were tied with 10. Dr. Doolittle had nine. Graduate in the Heat of the Night and Thoroughly Modern Millie all had seven. Camelot was five. Cool Hand Luke, Dirty Dozen, and In Cold Blood had four, and A Place to Stand and The Taming of the Shrew had two each. But for multiple wins, In the Heat of the Night took home five, Camelot three, and Bonnie and Clyde, Dr. Doolittle, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner each took home two. So, do you have any general thoughts on these? I do. Do you think there was hesitancy for some reason on putting forth Poitier as supporting actor. I know it's difficult to call him supporting in, in the heat of the night, but I think you could almost get away with that classification on guests who's coming to dinner. It mystifies me that he does not, that he did not get nominated for either Best Actor or Best Supporting Actor for one or the other role. And I I know we're in a period where the studios are being more savvy about what they are. You know, we're starting to get into a more modern era about perhaps what they're submitting for consideration. So I understand, you know, maybe not wanting to try and split the vote between Spencer Tracy and Poitier or Steiger and Poitier. But I I don't know why you would put forth um, Cecil Kellaway instead of Poitier for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Yeah, I I, I saw there were the two major omissions. Poitier for Best Actor was the other one that screams out at me in the how was he not nominated. Yeah. I mean, when you're in the mix with Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman, Paul Newman, and Spencer Tracy, there's no guarantee he would win 
although he would have been my choice. It's not that it was wrong to give it to Rod Steiger because I preferred Poitier's performance, but Steiger nailed his too. I think Poitier's role just had a little more range, even though Steiger had range, he had change, he played it subtle. So you could see him by the end of the film, you could think that, okay, you know, you see his mind changing. And again, he was one of the racists that was more, more of a passive racism than active. So he strikes me as the kind of character who'd be opposed to the Ku Klux Klan, but is not questioning the systemic racism that's in place the way he should be. And you could see some of that in his reaction when someone tells him, well, yeah, the previous sheriff would have already run this guy out of town, although he didn't call him a guy. I will not repeat the word that the character used. Right. Well, and he's, I can't recollect if he never uses a racial slur, but he's slower to use it and he needles, he picks other points other than race to bring Tibbs down. You know, the infamous they call me Mr. Tibbs is, comes from Gillespie making fun of his first name, Virgil. Yeah, and in that exchange, he does use the racial slur. Okay. Yeah, but it's, I think it's the only time I recall him using it, but... It drops out of everybody else's mouth like every other sentence. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's the, the quote on the IMDB. I'm just going to use the first letter there. Is Gillespie saying, Virgil, that's a funny name for an N-boy that comes from Philadelphia. What do they call you up there? And that's when you get, they call me Mr. Tibbs. And just the seething under it, you can see. And it's deserved. But yeah, I think that's the only time it's used. But you could see that growth. You could see him, you know, when the other guy says, well, this is how the, the previous sheriff would have handled it. Gillespie's kind of taken aback there, because you could see that, no, that's, that's not okay with him. So yeah, to me, I'm right up there for the best picture. I honestly haven't seen The Graduate I mean, of the five nominees. I've only seen In the Heat of the Night, Dr. Doolittle and The Graduate. And Dr. Doolittle and The Graduate were both a couple of decades ago. Mm-hmm. The Graduate, I didn't, I wasn't super impressed by, but I was also young enough that if it was slow, it could have still been good and I wouldn't have been impressed by it. So I may not have given it a fair chance at that age. You know, recalling how Dr. Doolittle and The Graduate came in, I think Dr. Doolittle was more the epic trying to get all this done with the animals. The books were still very popular. They'd actually been re-released about 15 years prior to uh, remove things like racial slurs. And again, the author Hugh Lofting seems to have been a victim of systemic racism, which I didn't realize when I started reading the first book for Bedtime in the Public Domain. It was recommended by a friend who I trust. We found out afterwards she had never seen the versions that are in the public domain. She'd only seen the 1950s rewrites. Uh, so it, <laughs> it, it's a weird mix where he's trying to you know, do little and his friends go to Africa. And the author is trying to show these guys in a positive light. But when the kindest word he uses to describe the natives of Africa is darkies, it doesn't really work. And, you know, the African prince wants to be a white guy, so he's actually attractive. And in the original, they, you know, they grant his wish temporarily and try to get out because the magic's only going to work for three days. The original version, they are 
laughing because you know, well he's going to be ugly no matter what it's not about the color of his skin it's about the shape of his features and then in the rewrite apparently they flip it saying no you're already attractive what are you talking about you don't need to become a white person to get that so anyway the the movie came out after the rewrite that toned down the the systemic racism from the novels and it's interesting comparing this year and last year and that's I think the two kind of show the sea change that's happening culturally and how film is catching up. Because I felt like last year, other than Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which was nominated, excuse me, which was directed by Mike Nichols, all of the films were films that Hollywood was just typically making in the 50s, maybe more lavish, maybe with a bigger budget, but still kind of, you saw a lot of the old Hollywood still there. And this year it's flipped. Dr. Doolittle is the same type of film that they would have made, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. But all of the rest of the films that were nominated were very fresh and modern. Yeah, and there's going to be some give and take on that over the years. There's the, the pendulum swings, which we'll talk about next month. But yeah, th- this is definitely, you can see the, those motions because, yeah, a few years ago, Dr. Doolittle as a well-made musical could have been a serious contender. So I haven't seen that. I was probably less than 10 years old the last time I saw it. The only things I clearly remember from it are the Push Me, Pull Me, and the song Talk to the Animals. So I have no issues with Talk to the Animals taking home the award. I, I think in hindsight, I you could argue that certainly Bare Necessities has had the better longevity as a song. I think the biggest thing that Dr. Doolittle has going against it is Rex Harrison is a great actor, but not a singer. And, you know, My Fair Lady managed to give him things that he could say in a sing-song manner, but he's still more rhythmically speaking than singing. When you put him as the lead in a musical, that's much harder to pull off. And I I think that's part of what Dr. Doolittle suffers from. That and, you know, how many... When you have a book series, and Hollywood often falls flat on this, especially in the era before franchises, you know, how many bits and pieces are you going to try and Frankenstein together from those series to put into your one film? Yeah, which is funny because at least a couple of those Dr. Little books are big enough to be movies on their own. So that first one, I think, was about a, a five or six hour read by the time it was done. We've now bought our daughter the four volume complete collection. So it's the 1950s rewrites. Mm-hmm that have the racial issues corrected. And we're looking at, you know, 1,200 page volumes that only have three or four books in them with not the the largest print. So yeah, the, these are ones where they do have to cobble it together. Hearing about the voyages of Dr. Doolittle, the, the Downey Jr. version, I picked up the DVD for $4.99. I haven't watched it yet. But it does sound like it's based largely on the second, or yeah, the second novel. The third novel takes place between the first two. So some of these seems like they've got that so that I don't remember the first one clearly enough to remember if they just borrowed from the first or if they were doing the the mix and match again. I know Return to Oz definitely did that because the novel 
uh, Marvelous Land of Oz, the second novel, doesn't actually have Dorothy. Right. It's it, it's the Adventures of Tip, who, spoilers for a hundred-year-old book, is Ozma at the end. <laughs> yeah, which they may, he may not have been thinking about it in those terms, but I think L. Frank Baum actually has the earliest transgender character in children's literature. Yeah, probably so. But, you know, I I've seen all of the films that were nominated. I mean, uh, Dr. Doolittle, it's probably been at least a decade. The Graduate, maybe three or four years. And then the past month, I watched In the Heat of the Night, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and Bonnie and Clyde. So, you know, the only, and I only bring it up because of some of the other things it was nominated for, the only thing I would quibble with is Dr. Doolittle. So, for example, you could easily slot Cool Hand Luke in its place, and I wouldn't have any objection at all. I am, I am, I think the two, in my opinion, the two biggest contenders for this year were in the heat of the night. And guess who's coming to dinner? Bonnie and Clyde is is a good movie. You can kind of view it as a meditation on violence or just a historical, I hesitate to use the word, drama, a kind of a historical fictionalization of um, Bonnie and Clyde. It works either way. I, I am with you, Blaine. Maybe we just grew up in the wrong eras. I, I get how The Graduate is supposed to be kind of an anthem film for disaffected youth, but Benjamin Braddock's experiences are not mine so I just didn't connect with the film in the same way I would and I I unintentionally watched them this way not back to back but one one night and the second the other you could do worse than putting together in the heat of the night and guess who's coming to dinner as a kind of thematic double bill yeah this was a really good year for Sidney Poitier which again I'm just going to pull up his filmography so we can just look at what he was doing in 1967. So he's got three credits for 1967, To Serve With Love, In the Heat of the Night, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. So when you've got three roles, all starring, and two of those three, the movies end up being nominated for Best Picture, when you've got the lead role, it's... Yeah, we lost him in January. We are recording this in 2022. And he was incredible. I mean, I I think my first real exposure to Sidney Poitier would have been Sneakers in 1992. But yeah, he did a great job in that as well. This is going to sound funny, maybe not. You know, I, I think I've mentioned my father a couple of times on the podcast in his way, in his own particular way, he was a film lover and got me interested in different things. So my first exposure was to Sir With Love, because my dad had a crush on Lulu. Okay. So he he and I watched that together one day when it was on television. So that was my first exposure to Sidney Poitier. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. He's... We we have obviously mentioned Poitier before. He took home the Oscar in 1964 for Best Actor in a Leading Role for Lilies of the Field. And he 
that set the record as the first African-American to win the best actor. And he's sadly also the last one for a long time. He was nominated for the Defiant Ones in 59. And he's going to get another honorary award in 2002. And that's his complete history of nominations, which blows me away. That strikes me as lacking, given the man's career. They also make a good counterpoint. So if you're okay with me just diverting just a little bit into Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, it also has a theme of racism. So the the very broad plot of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is the daughter of an affluent liberal couple comes home from a vacation in Hawaii to announce that she's planning on getting married to an African-American doctor that she met on vacation that she's known for 10 days. And that if they have any objections to their marriage, she wants them out in the open and they have a day to state them. She kind of gives them an ultimatum. My fiance wants to know if you have a problem with this, but we are flying out so I can support him and his career later tonight. So you've got five hours. I'm making up a time limit, Blaine, but you know, you've got a very short amount of time to get right of, with this if you've got a problem with it and it's it it subverts the expectations that you have from in the heat of the night of course everyone's going to be racist in sparta mississippi in the late 60s but the daughter jody drayton and guess who's coming to dinner because of her upbringing and the way her parents brought her up it never occurs to her that her parents, who were played by Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, would have any issues. So it's it's their struggles with what they profess to believe and the reality of what they're faced with and how they handle that conflict in the space of a single evening that kind of sets up the drama in the film. Interesting. Because just the way you're describing it, as a parent, I would think that the biggest issue was you've known this person 10 days. Like it should be at least let's talk about a longer engagement period here. people. Well, it, it's so that's, that's a little bit, that's a little part of it. So where the performances are very nuanced is obviously the parents are shocked and upset and think it's a bad idea and some of it is the length of time and Spencer Tracy's character for example continuously swears that he's not racist and that he doesn't have a problem with I think Sidney Poitier's character's name is Paul Prentice in it or John Prentice uh, Dr. John Prentice he doesn't have a problem with him at all and he would consider him a fine fellow in any other circumstance but it's, you know, he kind of keeps couching his objections and I don't have a problem with it. I have a problem with all of the problems that you're going to have because of other people having a problem with it. And because of that, it's a bad idea. And because of that, you shouldn't do it. And again, it's another fair and balanced film. Like I said, the daughter is extremely naive. And at the same time, it's not something that I think they would have thought about back then, Blaine, but at the same time, very privileged. 
So, for example, <laughs> there's a scene in which a co-worker of Catherine Hepburn's comes to the house because she had met them earlier in the gallery. And you could tell she was showing up for the schadenfreude, right? I want to see the shock and awe. I want to see the drama. That's why I'm showing up. And Catherine Hepburn quickly gets rid of her. And the daughter expresses her opinion that, you know what? She's a bitch. And if I thought about it for half a moment, I would tell you that, no, I'm going to say, it. I think, mom, mom, I think you should fire her. And I was just kind of struck by, you know, one, yes, that woman was horrible and rude and snide and racist, but but the privilege to just suggest someone offended me, you should go fire them, you know, mm-hmm. versus Poitier's character, who he's an he's an older man, so he's playing like a 37-year-old. He's scared to tell his parents. He hems and haws. And again, when I was talking about fair and balanced, the, they don't portray it that Poitiers' parents are in love with the idea either. So it, it's a really good double feature. Okay. That was already high on the list of movies I want to watch, especially recently now. I'm just... At this point, I'm ready to say, oh, Sidney Poitiers is in it? That goes on the watch list. He, he's just given that kind of performance consistently. And when people talk about the great Poitiers performances, it's Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is the one I'm used to hearing about. Yeah, this one was also incredible. This one, I don't know, just to diverge a little bit, we're not going to naturally discuss it in 1970 when it comes up because it doesn't get a single nomination. But have you seen the sequel, They Call Me Mr. Tibbs? I haven't. And I didn't know that there was even a third film after that until I read it on Wikipedia. Okay. So so there are two other films starring Poitiers, Mr. Tibbs, out there. All right. Yeah, I see. Yeah, there's uh, They Call Me Mr. Tibbs in 1970 and The Organization in 1971. So, yeah, I haven't seen either. Are you familiar with the TV show at all? I am aware of its existence, but I don't think I ever watched it. It ran at 10 or 11 p.m. when I was younger, and I didn't record it to check it out because it I didn't have the association. I remember it being frequently advertised. I think it had Carol O'Connor mm-hmm. as Gillespie. Yep, Carol O'Connor was Gillespie, and I, I think Howard Rollins was the actor's name who played the Virgil Tibbs role. I I know I had seen it. I think it was like paired with something similar to like Matlock or something like that on NBC. I remember nothing about it. I can just like see act, you know, characters' faces and know who the characters are. But evidently, the concept behind the show was that it was more of Gillespie and Tibb. So like they, the conceit of the show is that the 1967 film happened instead, and in like you know. 85, 86, whatever the timeline would have been needed to have been for the show. And they change it subtly to where Tibbs has family in Sparta, Mississippi, so that the stop was not a stop. You know, in the film, it was, in this film, it's a stopover. The conceit of In the Heat of the Night is all of this happened, but in the 80s, and the stop wasn't a stopover. He was visiting family both times. So, 
Okay, so it was a destination. Yeah. And it it sounds like that might not work in the 80s, but I went to... <laughs> I was in college in the 90s with someone who grew up in Mississippi, and considering that there were technically laws in the Mississippi State Constitution that still legalized slavery that weren't taken off the Constitution until the 90s, it probably still worked. Unfortunately, yeah. Looking at the IMDb ratings, In the Heat of the Night gets an 8.0. For the movie, the TV series has a 7.7 out of 10, and then They Call Me Mr. Tibbs and the organization both get 6.0. Okay. So, yeah, respectable, but not major Oscar territory, really. Shall we actually go through the Golden Globes and then get to how this yep. is done? On Okay. So the Golden Globes, for the best film drama, In the Heat of the Night, beat out Bonnie and Clyde, Far from the Maddening Crowd, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and In Cold Blood. The best film comedy or musical went to The Graduate, beating out Camelot, Dr. Doolittle, The Timing of the Shrew, and Thoroughly Modern Millie. Interesting. Best actor, yeah. Uh, best actor went to Rod Steiger for In the Heat of the Night, beating out Alan Bates, Far from the Maddening Crowd, Warren Beatty, Bonnie and Clyde, Paul Newman, Cool Hand Luke, Sidney Poitier for In the Heat of the Night, and Spencer Tracy for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. So very similar, but at least Poitier is finally in the mix. Best Actress Drama went to Edith Evans for The Whisperers, beating out Faye Dunaway for Bonnie and Clyde, Audrey Hepburn for Wait Until Dark, Catherine Hepburn for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and Anne Haywood for The Fox. Best Actor in a Comedy or Musical went to Richard Harris for Camelot, beating out Richard Burton in Taming of the Shrew, Rex Harrison for Dr. Doolittle, Dustin Hoffman for The Graduate, and Ugo Cognazzi for Climax Limoral. Best Actress, Comedy, or Musical went to Anne Bancroft for The Graduate, Julie Andrews for Thoroughly Modern Millie, Audrey Hepburn, or beating out Julie Andrews, sorry, for Thoroughly Modern Millie, Audrey Hepburn in Two for the Road, Shirley MacLaine in Woman Times Seven, and Vanessa Redgrave for Camelot. Best Supporting Actor went to Richard Attenborough for Dr. Doolittle, beating out John Cassavetes for The Dirty Dozen, George Kennedy for Cool Hand Luke, Michael J. Pollard for Bonnie and Clyde, and Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. for Wait Until Dark. Supporting Actress went to Carol Channing for Thoroughly Modern Millie, beating out Quentin Dean for In the Heat of the Night. That's the actress who played uh, Dolores Purdy. She also beat out Lillian Gish for The Comedians, Lee Grant for In the Heat of the Night. That was Mrs. Colbert. Prunella Ransom for Far From the Maddening Crowd, and Bea Richards for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, who was... She played the mother of Sidney Poitier's character in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, but she was also the Mama Cabela, or Caleba, who did the uh, abortions in In the Heat of the Night. And she was also nominated for Best Supporting Actress at the Oscars, I think. Yes, yes also for Guess yep. Who's Coming to Dinner. Best Director also went to Mike Richards for The Graduate, beating out Norman Jewison for In the Heat of the Night, Stanley Kramer for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Arthur Penn for Bonnie and Clyde, and Mark Rydell for The Fox. Best Screenplay... In the Heat of the Night, beat out Bonnie and Clyde, The Fox, The Graduate, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Best Foreign Film, here they went to The Fox in Canada. Oh, this is, sorry, Foreign Film English Language. So The Fox out of Canada took the number one spot, beating out five nominees from the UK. Accident, The Jokers, Smashing Time, Ulysses, and The Whisperers. Best Foreign Film in a Foreign Language, or I guess non-English language. It's hard to call it a foreign language when you've got a French or a film from France in French. But the winner was Live for Life from France. 
beating out Elvira Madigan from Sweden, Limoral from France and Italy, closely observed trains from Czechoslovakia, which is the one that won the Oscar for it, and The Stranger from France. Best music score went to Frederick Lowe for Camelot, beating out Dr. Doolittle, Thoroughly Modern Millie, Two for the Road, and Live for Life. Best song went to If Ever I Would Leave You from Camelot, beating out Talk to the Animals, Circles in the Water from Live for Life, Please Don't Gamble with Love from Ski Fever, and Thoroughly Modern Millie. So yeah, Bare Necessities didn't end up on the list for that one. New Star of the Year Male, Dustin Hoffman for The Graduate. New Star of the Year Female, Catherine Ross for The Graduate. World Film Favorite Male went to Paul Newman. World Film Favorite Female went to Julie Andrews. Best TV Show? Mission Impossible beat out The Carol Burnett Show, The Deep Martin Show, Garrison's Gorillas, and Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. So this would have been the second season of Mission Impossible on the air. That premiered in 66. Best TV Star Male went to Martin Landau for Mission Impossible. Beating out Brendan Boone for Garrison's Gorillas, Ben Gazzara for Run for Your Life, Dean Martin from the Dean Martin Show, and Andy Williams from the Andy Williams Show. I think Martin Lando only did three seasons of Mission Impossible. Yep. Yeah, he turned down the role of Spock to play in Mission Impossible, which was good because Roddenberry always had Nimoy as his first pick. He, that just got the network on board. And then uh, when Lando left Mission Impossible, Leonard Nimoy stepped in to fill in that role. Uh, best TV star female. Went to Carol Burnett for The Carol Burnett Show, beating out Barbara Bain for Mission Impossible, Lucille Ball for The Lucy Show, Nancy Sinatra for Moving With Nancy, and Barbara Stanwyck for The Big Valley. So, really similar to the Oscars. Yeah. Aside from actually nominating Poitiers. My, my interesting comment was, I've, I've frequented many a video store, and I worked for a video store. I have never seen The Graduate racked as a comedy. It might be a comedy. In the sense that the apartment was a comedy, that traditional theater sense where it's not about making you laugh, it's just about whether or not your heroes get a happy ending. Got it. But in that case, so is a lot of the things that show up in drama. I don't know. And then before we move away from the awards, you said you wanted to come back to Best Short Subject Cartoons. Yes. Thank you for the reminder. Yeah, what on earth, the nominee? I haven't seen the box. But What on Earth is excellent. It's made by the National Film Board of Canada. It was actually made in 66, but it made it to the U.S. in 67, so that, that's the eligibility year. It's one of the first ones that has alternate opening credits. So instead of being credited to the National Film Board of Canada, it's credited to the National Film Board of Mars. <laughs> and it's a claiming to be a documentary about Earth put together by Mars based on what they observe. And they have come to the conclusion that automobiles are the dominant species and humans are the parasites within them. Ah, oh, okay. So it's, it's worth tracking down. Uh, Canadian listeners, like anything made by the National Film Board of Canada, you could just watch it for free on their website or in their apps for Roku or uh, iOS, Android. I don't know if they've got it region locked or if that's available in the U.S. But yeah, if it's available, check it out. It is very entertaining. So that makes me want to see the box if What on Earth did not win. Anyway, so in terms of going through how the films are remembered, would you like to start with Letterboxd or with IMDb? Uh, let's do Letterboxd. All right. So Letterboxd. The highest rated of the nominated films is The Graduate. 
It comes in at the 12th of the year with an average rating of 4.06 out of 5. The highest rated American film is number 10, and that's Cool Hand Luke, which also comes in at 4.06 out of 5. So it's not a huge difference. I find that notable because that was the one that you mentioned Mm -hmm. you could have seen swapping out for Dr. Doolittle. The second highest nominated is In the Heat of the Night, which comes in at number 25. And then number 36 is Bonnie and Clyde. But again, these are pretty tight averages. Like In the Heat of the Night rounds down from 3.94 to a 3.9. And Bonnie and Clyde rounds up to a 3.9 from a 3.87. And then Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is a 3.74. And those are the ones that show up in the top 72. After manually searching for Dr. Doolittle, I found it down at the 2.7 out of 5 which I should mention is directed by Richard Fleischer. And while it's not one of his best, I do like the work of the Fleischer family in general, especially the Fleischer Animation Studios that was founded by his father and uncle. Now, as far as IMDb users are concerned, the highest rated nominee is In the Heat of the Night. That comes in at number 10 for the year. Again, anything with a minimum, a feature film with a minimum of 1,000 votes. Cool Hand Luke is number 6. Four of the five nominees show up in the top 20. We've got In the Heat of the Night at 10, The Graduate at 11, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner at 19, and Bonnie and Clyde at 20. And Bonnie and Clyde is a 7.8 out of 10, which is still a very high rating, which is also at Guess Who's Coming to Dinner rounds to The Graduate and In the Heat of the Night, both round to 8.0. And both websites put War and Peace Part 3 and Samurai Rebellion in the top three. I haven't seen Samurai Rebellion yet, but I have a a five-movie Samurai Criterion box set that it's a part of. Again, Dr. Doolittle does show up on the list in spot 131. So it has an average rating of 6.2 out of 10. So the IMDb users were a little kinder to Dr. Doolittle than the Letterboxd users. But it definitely seems like that is the odd man out, and Cool Hand Luke appears to be the major omission. So again, we've already established of the films I've seen from the year. I haven't seen Cool Hand Luke yet. Yeah, In the Heat of the Night, I would say yes, that is number one. I I think you're okay with it being number one, although you had other contenders looking at the nominees. How would you feel about it overall with everything else that you've seen from the year? It's a very close race between it and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And... I think this is going to be one of those on any given Sunday. Ask me, Blaine, and my answer may be different. I had seen both films before, and coming up to this month, In the Heat of the Night was clearly the superior film for my recollection. And watching both of them, guess who's coming to dinner this time jumped up several notches in my estimation. So I'm going to say I think the Academy still got it right. And my my opinion may change the next time I watch both of them. It was that close. Okay. Um, who would you recommend this to? Everyone. <laughs> I mean, I, I I know that sounds... It's, it's too good of a movie to pigeonhole in a niche category. Uh, but I will say, you know, if you heard about Sidney Poitier's passing and you're like, you know, I need to watch some of his movies and you're of our generation and maybe your experience is limited to sneakers. Put this towards the top of your watch list. 
if, if you like, you know, if you like racial dramas, this is one of the best ones there is. I, it is not a buddy cop film. It, it is not that kind of a movie. This isn't Midnight Run here. But, it, I mean, it's just, it's so good. And it it's tough to say about a character that you clearly know is racist. But it manages to make both protagonists in this film sympathetic. Like I said, they don't forget to give Tibbs a flaw himself. And they do a good job of making you understand with everything that's going on, the pressures that Gillespie's under, and how that could lead both men from from opposite ends of uh, the spectrum to come to a begrudging respect for each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say people probably picked up on it when I was talking about you know the, the best of the, the top ten. Again, I would agree that I would recommend this to everyone. The only hesitation I would say, parents. I mean, we do have an an exhibitionist as, as one of the characters. It is depicted on screen, but not completely. They, you know, they've got thick window sills and things, so that the audience sees less than the characters do, but we still see enough that you may not want to watch it with the very young. I will agree. From a subject matter perspective, there are racial slurs, accusations of statutory rape get thrown around, and solving the murder hinges on an abortion being planned. And I'm, I'm not speaking about abortion as right or wrong, but just from the perspective of uh, you know, as Blaine said, depending on what your comfort level is with your children, I might not watch it with them unless you're prepared to discuss those topics. Yeah, so I guess I'm, I would still recommend it to everyone, but those who are not yet of age, I would recommend watching it later rather than sooner. Yeah. My son is 12. I probably, he knows about the racial slurs, the sexual content type stuff doesn't interest him yet so i i don't know if he would pick up on it or not my 15 year old daughter i had zero reservations about her watching this with me and i know all people are different but that's just to kind of give from the hooks household a guideline i guess yeah again it's the the people are different parents love different expectations and speaking as a teacher to me it's not about ages it's about stages so you can have a prepared 12-year-old and an unprepared 15-year-old in some households as well. So again, I, this is one, if you're a parent, maybe just, yeah, screen it yourself absolutely, and then decide if it's appropriate to share with the children what works best for your family. All right, so shall we tell people what we're going to be discussing next month? Yes, next month it will be the 1968 Awards. We're going to ask all of our listeners to consider themselves at home with us We might learn to pick a pocket or two as we watch the musical Oliver by Carol Reed. Yes, and if we're looking at the complete list of nominees for comparison, Oliver beat out Funny Girl, The Lion in Winter, Rochelle Rochelle, and Romeo and Juliet. And that's the uh, Franco Zeffirelli-directed version of Romeo and Juliet. So yes, we will be discussing 
Oliver and some of those. And in, in the past, well, actually in every episode, we also go through what's highest rated on the IMDb. This is a year with omissions. Yes. At least from the nomination list. We will discuss whether they still came up with the right best picture. But if you look at the movies released that year, there's some surprises for what was not nominated. Right, so join us for that next month, and thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.